Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Claiborne Christian. Clay is a business development officer for Tulane University, where he focuses on establishing and facilitating collaborations involving research at Tulane and industry, venture capital, and other external partners, ensuring that all parties have an optimal enterprise experience. Prior to his time at Tulane, Clay did freelance scientific writing, business development, and consulting. Clay received a bachelor's degree in classics and classical language, literature, and linguistics with a minor in biology from Hendricks College and a PhD in biomedical sciences from Tulane University. Clay did a postdoctoral fellowship at St. Jude Children's Hospital. And with that impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Clay. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, thanks again for taking part in the podcast, and it's really great to have you here. So, Clay, I generally like to start the podcast off by asking my guests about their journey to tech transfer. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up at the Office of Research Business Development at Tulane? Sure. Um, so I have a, a somewhat unusual background um, combining a bachelor's degree and, as you said, a bachelor's degree in classics, which is Greek and Roman history, language, uh, literature, um, and then also the the hard science PhD from Tulane University, actually. Um, and what that allows me to do is to have a deep understanding of the science, but also couple it with an undergrad education that really taught me how to communicate, write, synthesize information for broad audiences. Um, so I, I knew fairly early on in my graduate training that I wanted to do something non-traditional academic um, just because I wanted to be able to leverage all those different skill sets. Um, I'm sort of happiest when I'm challenged to sort of communicate things in unique ways and put pieces together that don't necessarily people wouldn't think to put together initially. Um, so I knew that I wanted to do something that wasn't just straight academia. Um, I did do a postdoc uh, for about a year back in Memphis, and I came after my postdoc. I actually took a year to do the scientific writing, freelance consulting, some of which I still do on the weekends, um, just because I wanted to get a exposure to a bunch of different. I wanted to know what my options were. Um, so I basically lever I leveraged my network back home in New Orleans. And I did a, a bunch of freelance stuff, some for Tulane, different parts of Tulane, some for our big cancer research center that's down here, and then a couple of other other clients as well. And the, the Tulane stuff eventually turned into my full-time job in the Office of Research Business Development, which I've been in for three years now since this past March. Now, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with the RBD office at Tulane, Clay, can you tell us a little bit more about it and its role at the university? Sure. The Office of Research Business Development was started about six years ago. Um, 
And its whole job is to serve as one of the front doors for people who want something from the research at the university. And that can look like a lot of different things that can look like access to specific technologies or projects, which is why we work very closely with the Office of Technology Transfer. Uh, it can look like access to students um, from undergrads all the way up to and including graduate students and postdocs if companies are recruiting. It can look like more traditional philanthropy, corporate philanthropy. It can look like um, access to key opinion leaders. So if a company needs an expert in prostate cancer or in vaccinology, we're one of the offices that they can go through. Um, Basically, we, we connect the scientific expertise and the resources at Tulane, like our National Primate Research Center, with people in the outside world. Um, we really try and take a customer service-centric approach, so it's a lot of learning about their needs. Uh, we always start the conversation by telling them to tell them to tell us about them and what they want, um, so that we can really try and connect those dots. Um, and because we're so because we're comprehensive, uh, it really allows us to have a deep relationship with these entities that puts the relationship first and puts the alliance first um, so that we can have a chance to develop things that go beyond just one-off projects um, and individual license agreements and things like that. So it's a lot of, you know, from the in the day-to-day, -day, it's, it's lead finding, it's project management, it's relationship and alliance management. Um, subject matter expertise and analytics as well. So during COVID, we actually developed a suite of programs and initiatives with, within the office that help help tell the university what the university is good at in a really specific and concrete way, um, which has been very, I love developing those projects because they allow me to leverage my, you know, scientific uh, data-driven side with my, you know, communicating what we're good at both ex externally and internally as well. Clay, my understanding is that the RBD office has been challenging the way corporations and universities collaborate by embracing an agile mindset and offering custom tailored guidance and support that operates at the speed of business. Can you tell us more about how this agile mindset works and some of the custom tailored guidance and support that your office has been able to provide? Sure. So as I, as I mentioned previously, we are we approach everything with a very customer service mindset. So we are extremely responsive to feedback from our external partners. Um, one of the one of the earliest uh, specific things that we responded to was the was the need from biotech and pharmaceutical companies. They wanted us to change how we were presenting potential opportunities. So like like many um, like many universities, we our office had been relying on one sheets that sort of summarized either projects or labs. Um, but what we found is that what people in biotech and pharma really want is a data forward sort of almost pitch deck approach um, where it's very clearly articulated, like what the asset or project is, what the need is, like what the ask is, whether it's a license or sponsored research or expert access to their expertise. Um, and then some really key key bits and pieces of science that make a compelling argument for why it's why that particular project is so unique, why it's so cutting edge, why why you should partner with Tulane around this area of science. So we have to walk a very fine line between, you know, it's certainly not a symposium presentation, but it's also much more involved than a one sheet. Um, so it was a it was a fun challenge to try and get us to that sweet spot where we were both supplying the necessary scientific information 
but in five slides or less that would allow allow these partners to make a decision. Um, another way that we have been um, sort of changing or refining our approach in response to feedback is that, again, like, like many universities, we've said for a long time that we have strengths in oncology in sort of bigger umbrella areas. Oncology and infectious disease happen to be Tulane's big historic umbrella areas. However, what we heard from, again, feedback from our external partners is that in order to make decisions about who they want to strategically align with, they need more information. So it's not enough to say that you're good at oncology. You need to say, like for us, for example, we are really good at hormone responsive cancers that happen to have a minority um, a minority or a health disparities component, um, all the way from basic biology up to and including clinical trials. Um, in infectious disease, we have a lot of infectious disease research, but we have particular areas of strength around the biologies of vaccines and the immune response to them. So being able to identify those specific areas um, that biotech and pharmaceutical companies can align with, that's been something that's been a big effort in our office, and that's gotten a very positive response. Um, building on that sort of being a, being the font of scientific information for the university is um, being able to just supply the community, supply our potential collaborators, supply our stakeholders with valuable scientific information around certain topics, even if there's no immediate benefit for us. So sort of making ourselves available as experts in our own right um, in these specific scientific areas, even if it doesn't mean that that's going to result in a collaboration um, immediately. It's really about, again, that sort of customer service relationship first mindset underpinned by a strong internal knowledge of the university science within the office. And Clay, I think that's a great segue into my next question, because I know during COVID, you and your office came out with something called the COVID-19 Daily Digest. Can you tell us a little bit more about this Daily Digest and the inspiration behind it? Yeah, this is um, I, this is one of my favorite sort of organic uh, <laughs> meeting, a, meeting a community needs stories from our office. So when COVID really hit New Orleans um, back in March of March of 2020, um, my boss asked me to if I would be able to start reviewing the literature every day just to like pick out the key bits and pieces, summarize it, and then distribute it to our upper level leadership in the School of Medicine. Um, as it turns out, it was it was originally just like maybe two dozen people. As it turns out, uh, that kind of information, so distilled, synthesized, put in context, understandable to a wide array of audiences, there was a real need for that, not only within the university, but also within the sort of greater community, particularly in the, uh, the biotech and pharmaceutical industry community. So what this evolved into was an email newsletter that was daily for a long time, and then we switched to tri-weekly, bi-weekly, and then weekly, and then we actually just ended uh, in the middle of May. Um, over 14 months, we had 2,500 consistent subscribers. 80% of them read it every single time it came out. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, it was it was fascinating. Um, the majority of 75% of them were in the biotechnology or pharmaceutical space, so it wasn't a majority internal two-lane communication anymore. It was really an, an outward-facing uh, resource. Um, and I did a rough, a conservative sort of estimation of how many individual pieces of COVID 
news and scientific content we had to we had to sort of review, summarize, and th- synthesize, and it's over 2,000 individual pieces of information uh, that ended up in that newsletter. And we did a couple of, um, being a very data-centric uh, <laughs> customer service, customer feedback-oriented person, we did a couple of surveys um, throughout the course of, of, of the COVID digest going on, and we just saw over and over again, the response was overwhelmingly positive. And we saw words like service, trust, source of information, um, you know, hundreds of people saying thank you uh, around 10 to 15. I can't remember exactly. It was somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of the reading list actually responded to the survey. Which oh, wow. Were, yeah. So That's <laughs> really people, good. It was a it was an, I was shocked, um, very, very humbled and and touch that so many people relied on it so much. Um, but that I think is a, is a testament to the office and our mindset. Like we're, we are about serving the community, facilitating those kind of interactions, um, and really just providing, providing what we can to people who need it. Uh, so we, we viewed it as a sort of natural, our office was a natural home for something like that because we have the connections in biotech and pharma. We have the skill sets for it. And I think that we have the the our mindset is correct for for doing something like that. Well, I think that was an incredible effort. And I wanted to ask, I mean, I, I do patent law and I write I've been writing patent applications in the diagnostic space for COVID for the last 18 months. And I know how much literature was just coming out daily just in the diagnostic space. So was it just you or did you have some help? And if so, how much time did you guys spend doing this every day or every week, would you estimate? Yeah, so it, it started out as just me. Um, I eventually got a fantastic team of PhD student interns um, and postgrad interns. Two of them were copy editors, and then some of them, the the PhD student interns, I used as my um, my research gophers for. We did special we did special editions on the weekends that covered instead of just being the news of the day, were you know big whole topics. So we did one on vaccine development, which is probably my favorite, just because I happen to have a soft spot for vaccines going back to, you know, when I was a wee baby scientist. Um, We did one on animal models. We did one on health disparities. Um, So they helped with, they certainly helped with those special editions a lot, just sort of as the information gatherers. But it was a the day-to-day of it was a lot of me sitting on PubMed and a couple of other... I can only imagine. Yeah, that's a lot of work because there was just, like I said, I know from the diagnostic space, just a ton of stuff coming out. And then when you're looking at everything as a whole, it must have just... It was an incredible undertaking. That's all I can imagine. Yeah. During the beginning, it was definitely drinking from a fire hose. But eventually I got good at you know, looking for just even judging by the title or the abstract. It's like, okay, is this something that's worth my time or is this something that... I've already seen before, um, but it, it was a lot of work. I am, I'm glad we did it, but I'm also glad that we're here. I can imagine after uh, 18 months or so, I'm sure you are. But yeah, thank you again for doing that. And I wanted to go back and touch on something you mentioned a little bit earlier, and you mentioned the tech transfer office there at Tulane. Can you tell us a little bit about how your office and the tech transfer office work together? Sure. Uh, the short answer is exceedingly closely. <laughs> um we so our one of our major bits of activity is the lead finding for um, projects, and also we will highlight individual technologies as well. The line between a lab project and individual technology often gets very blurry, as I'm sure you and everyone who's listening knows. Um, so we do a lot of work together. We don't do the 
our office does not do any of the contractual, um, no MD, uh, no, we don't shepherd the MTAs. We don't do any of the licensing negotiation, um, any of the agreements. That's all John Christie's excellent shop, um, the office of technology transfer, but we, we will take first passes at some of those. We'll, once we get to a stage where someone wants to license something, I'm more than happy to just hand them over to the technology transfer office. Um, They've also got, they've also used us um, because we do, because we, they also interact with industry a lot, clearly, but it's always great to have like novel insight and sometimes industry, we have different contacts. So there's a lot of sharing of information. Um, We actually have bi-weekly meetings between our offices. So it's me and my counterparts just for that sort of boots on the ground, mid-level exchange of day-to-day granular information. Um, and it's been incredibly valuable for, for both sides, I would say. Um, so it's, it's a, it really is. And that's a, that's something that Tulane in general, like it's an extremely collaborative pace place. Tulane, I like to say is, is big enough to have resources, but small enough to be very agile and very, um, creative in the way that it works. So not only do we work closely with the Office of Technology Transfer, but also we work closely with advancement, especially major gifts. Um, We work closely with the uh, Office of um, Corporation and Foundation Relations. So the the office that's responsible for more of the direct philanthropic interactions with corporations versus us where they they get something material in return. Um, It's a, Tulane in general is a very unique and I would it's a great place to work just because that collaborative spirit is so penetrating in everything that we do. Clay, I wanted to switch gears and ask, does the RBD office have any programs to help encourage and assist women and other traditionally underrepresented researchers, inventors, and entrepreneurs? And if so, could you discuss those in some detail? Yeah. So this is, um, this is something that is extremely important to the university, the school of medicine, and to, our office in general, um, as an out and proud queer person, uh, and we are underrepresented in science, uh, it's very important just to to have that representation to really highlight and lift people up who are in traditionally underrepresented minorities in STEM. So when we, one of the major ways that we do this is that that need for diversity and representation is always at the forefront of our minds when we're planning events, planning symposium, thinking about who to put in front of people. Um, and that goes all the way from the from the department chair level all the way down to and including the graduate students. Um, I actually this is not my my main job, but as a sort of a service to the university, I'm one of the advisors for the uh, for the Ph.D. students at the School of Medicine, their program. And we talk a lot about um, the need to establish a, a more robust pipeline of diverse candidates um, into the School of Medicine Ph.D. program. And they've made some enormous progress Um with some, I mean, they need very little guidance. Usually it's just me saying, yes, that's a good idea. Go do it. <laughs> that's great. Um, they're brilliant. Um, so I would say that those, the, we really do focus on the, the importance of representation when you have public facing things like that, not only to, not only to lift up those individual researchers, but also to show the future students that this is what science looks like. It, it looks like you, even if you're not, you know, even if you belong, especially when you belong to one of those underrepresented minorities, um, for sure. And then also personally, I, um, I sit on the autumn, uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion committee, um, where I tend to, my expertise that I bring to bear is around, 
LGBTQ um, plus issues, uh, as well as my sort of very data centric and demographics minded uh, nature. So I was responsible for helping to do um, the uh, diversity, equity and inclusion demographic survey of autumn so that we can figure out, you know, not only what are the specific programs that we can offer as an organization, but how in what areas do we need to grow um, regarding specific specific underrepresented groups within autumn itself. Yeah, and data and demographics are so important when you're talking about equity, diversity, and inclusion. So we're really glad to have you on that committee. So Clay, I also know you're a member of and you have a leadership position in NACRO, and you're actually our first guest on the podcast who's been a member of NACRO. So could you tell us a little bit about what it is, what it has to offer, and your role in the organization? Of course. So NACRO is the National Association of Corporate Relations Officers. Um, and what it is, it is, is a network of uh, corporate relations individuals within universities. There's a small industry component, but it's it's bread and butter is sort of those corporate relations professionals within academic institutions. Um, as I sort of uh, talked about in the first part of this uh, podcast, our office is really umbrella-y, like we wear many different hats. Um, so NACRO is a great home for us because NACRO in and of itself is extremely diverse professionally. So you'll have people like me who um, are very research-focused. They work for a medical school. You'll have people that work in different um, in different schools, like the business schools or for liberal, uh, liberal arts departments. You'll have people who work for, you know, big research universities like Tulane. You'll also have individuals that work for um, smaller community colleges. Um, and what it really, what network really, what NACRO really allows us to do is, is to learn from each other and to network um, in a way that allows us to bring back meaningful, uh, meaningful initiatives, meaningful data back to our home institutions and use them to make our own home offices better. So NACRO is really great at professional development, especially when you're first getting started in your career. Um, as a corporate relations professional, we provide a lot of thought leadership around what it mean, what corporate relations actually means, um, what partnerships look like, what they can look like, what makes a good partnership versus what what partnerships perhaps should be reevaluated. Uh, again, a lot of networking and just sharing of information um, and also advocacy. Um, for our members uh, to to industry to make them appreciate, you know, why 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 should you uh, why should you want to collaborate with with a university? Um, in my role, uh, I'm actually on the board of Net, where I'm about to roll off of the board of NACRO this coming July, and I was the member at large, which is the board member who's responsible for a um, they get assigned or they work with the board leadership to pick a a project a topic area that really speaks to them, that also fits within the uh, within the organization's current needs. And mine was looking at what corporate involvement with the organization sort of will mean going forward. Um, so there was a lot of really great work done building upon some work that the organization had done previously, but as is my nature, I was the one that sort of brought all of it together, organized it, and then made a made a strategic recommendation for how how the organization can move forward. Um, so NACRO is a NACRO has long had partnerships with Autumn. Um, they have a um, they rep each other at their conferences. Autumn always does a, a panel or a discussion about tech transfer 101 
uh, at NACRA's annual conference. NACRA always has a presence at Autumn's annual conference. They really, because because technology transfer and because um, corporate relations can be so intermeshed, it makes a lot of sense for the organizations to collaborate as closely as they do. Thanks, Clay, for that great description of NACRO. And just a quick note, you mentioned that NACRO stood for National Association of Corporate Relations Officers. Um, I think you meant Network of Academic Corporate Relations Officers. Oh, yeah. Um, I wanted to switch gears and uh, ask you what you think is most important in managing collaboration opportunities to have the greatest opportunity for success. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that, and all of these sort of go hand in hand, I think that first and foremost is that uh, my boss is going to be so proud of me for saying this (laughs) so often, is that customer service mindset, that like being responsive, being willing to listen to your to your potential partners and collaborators. Um, that doesn't always mean agreeing with what they what they ask for, what they tell you, but just being open to listening and responding, uh, responding to them in a timely manner, trying to make things as easy as possible um, for them. Uh, that's a really probably the most important sort of baseline for us. Um, the other thing that's closely related to that is uh, honesty about your capabilities. There are things that, you know, it's in 2021, no university can be all things to all people. No school within a university can be all things to all people. So being really honest about what you are good at and what you are, you know, what is not necessarily your wheelhouse is really important. One of the things that I like about working in science and technology is that eventually, um, you will, the buck stops somewhere. Like there is a, there is a hard stop to whether or not you can accomplish what you say you're going to accomplish. It, it can be quite cut and dry. So being as honest about what you're good at as soon as possible is a, it's something that, um, our collab, our potential collaborators, even if the answer is no, that's not our wheelhouse. They really value because it shows that we respect their time. It shows that we, like that we know what we're, we know our identity, we know our brand. Um, it's just a really, we always get a very positive response when we're upfront about what we can and cannot do. And then the last thing, which is related to both of those is being prepared. So knowing your, knowing your audience, knowing who you're talking to. Uh, and then also, again, knowing your science, knowing what you're, what you're good at and where, where your strengths maybe don't lie. Uh, I talked about pitch decks earlier. So this, this really relates to that now in you know 2021, and especially I would argue after COVID, um, people really want to get to the point quickly. Um, and so when you go in, especially when you, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to do any of the uh, like the digital bio or digital JPM meetings yes. where you're doing partnership forums, but via Zoom, like there is no small talk. <laughs> it's like straight to like what's the target, what's the modality, exactly. Uh, what's your animal models. Um, the first, uh, the first time I had to do it, I told my, I told a colleague, it's like, it felt like I was doing like 20 dissertation defenses in a row. It was extremely intense. It was exciting, but it was, um, I think it just really underscores the need to know, to know what you're offering and to know what you're capable of. Um, and also knowing your, you know, if you're talking to the business development person versus the, the company scientist, knowing how to modulate you know, how deep in the weeds you go, that's also equally important. 
So can you give us some examples of some successful collaborations that have come out of the RBD office? Yeah, for sure. I'm not going to, I'm going to have the cloak of uh, confidentiality as much as possible. <laughs> exactly. We had a, um, one of my favorites is a peptide based drug that we are actually working with um, in collaboration with an animal health company. So Tulane School of Medicine is a school of medicine for people, not for animals. Um, so this animal health really wasn't on our radar until we had a, actually they came to one of our events that we threw at Tulane back when we could throw events, hopefully very soon again. Um, and they were talking to us about, you know, you're really not necessarily looking at your technologies in a way that maximizes their potential impact. Like all of your technologies are animal health technologies if you've tested them in an animal model. Like that's a, you know, it's very, it's just as easy to go into a human from a mouse as it is to go into a dog or a cat from a mouse. So with this particular uh, peptide-based drug, um, we have done a, it's really hard to, it doesn't fit a traditional development model, which is probably why I like it so much. It's a series of a series of collaborations where they're testing the drug in their system, but then they're also turning around and having us test things in our systems because this drug was developed using a unique platform. So there's just a lot of exchange of information and the, you know, it's like a scientific collaboration. That's more what I was going to say. It sounds like a collaboration. Yep. Yeah. It's a, which is my happy place. Um, I mean, there's options and stuff built in, but we're still very much at the scientific discovery stage, um, which is exciting for, for both of us. I think they're extremely enthusiastic about it. Um, we also have a, a master agreement with an AI drug discovery company that we actually just finished revising to sort of update and get us um, get us to that next level of collaboration, which was a, a big effort, but very exciting that the ink is hopefully going to be drying very soon. Um, and that actually, I like that project because it really fills a gap for us. Um, so what, what we needed is we do a lot of things great, but we are not medicinal chemists. We don't really do traditional small molecule drug discovery. Um, what we are good at is novel biology and target identification, especially in certain distinct disease areas. Um, so that's what we bring to the table for this company. So it's really mutually beneficial, um, and it has the potential to really spin out a bunch of different independent projects in multiple areas. Uh, so we're extremely excited about that as well. Um, another one that's a, a smaller one um, was actually uh, we were actually told no by a major pharmaceutical company. So we developed a, a professor needed something to test in a model system. They needed access to a drug. Um, we developed a pitch deck to sort of pitch the idea to, to this large pharma company, and they were really excited about it. They loved the pitch deck. They loved the project. But then when they did their own internal due diligence, they found out that they had done the exact same experiments years ago, and they hadn't worked. And even though that was a no, that was still incredibly valuable for that PI because now they could they can rewrite their grant. They know how to, you know, they can tailor their own experiments um, in a different way. So we even though it was a no, I still count that as a win because we helped the faculty member develop their develop their science. Um, so it's it's great because that you know that academic person um, is able to advance their science. That uh, particular pharma company 
now has a has an established relationship with us. They know how we operate. They were very impressed with our process. Like it was it was still a win, even though there's no concrete collaboration. Um, and then last, which we've already talked about at length, is the is the COVID digest. Um, I would count that as a sort of meta collaboration <laughs> with the with the world, but it also um, spawned a a concrete collaboration for a time with one of the. Um, with a, a state's Department of Public Health. They found the digest, they loved it, and we actually worked together to, we supported their database um, of sort of code publications. They were taking our summaries and incorporating them into their uh, their publicly available database. Uh, so all of those I think are all very different um, and perhaps non-traditional tech transfer, but definitely examples of successful collaborations to us. Yeah, I think that's a great example of some diversity and successful collaborations. And I really like the second to last one with the pharma company and finding out that the drug had they had run the same experiment and and saving the PI from writing a grant and rediscovering something that was already discovered, which was the compound didn't work. So those are great examples. So thank you. So, uh, Clay, with success also comes challenges. So what would you say two of your office's biggest challenges are? Yeah, so I think that um, one of the major ones is how do you maintain a complete picture of the research at your institution, especially in a post-COVID world? You know, one of the one of the major ways that we um, that we maintained sort of the, our fingers on the pulses of the of the research at different departments was in-person interactions, like going to symposia. Um, going to the big external conferences um, and just looking at the looking at the scientific posters that were being presented, not only by Tulane but also by everyone else, so that we can figure out: okay, are we cutting edge? Where are we strong? Where where can we compete? Where can we not? Um, in a post-COVID world, there's a lot of debate, especially at those big scientific conferences. Like, are they going to come back the exact same way, or are they going to be? you know, sort of a hybrid virtual. Um, I think a lot of scientists really like a lot of the elements of the virtual conference. Um, they're cheaper to get to. They don't require as much work in some ways, but at the same time, you don't have that spontaneous collaboration. You don't have poster sessions that you can walk around to. So it's it's tricky. So we're trying to figure out, and then for us, like a lot of what our office did to communicate our research to the outside world were in-person events at Tulane. Like, when will those be back? Will they be back in the same way? Like, those are all questions that that I think are unique not only to us, but to um, that everyone is grappling with in some way, shape, or form. And then I think also uh, everyone in tech transfer, business development, um, especially post-COVID, uh, aligning academic and corporate expectations, especially around what counts as an early stage technology or how developed is developed enough, or even like what format um, potential projects are presented in that whole one sheet versus pitch deck pivot that we did. I think that to a degree, most offices uh, grapple with that in some way, shape or form. So Clay, I generally like to close the podcast by asking my guests, if you could have any three wishes granted or a vision realized for your office, what would those be? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> if only I had a <laughs> magic lamp. Um, I would say that first and foremost, I would like to see much more 
trainee involvement in the office. So more grad students, more postdocs. Um, and I say that as a as someone who was a grad student uh, slash postdoc not too long ago, I think that working in offices like this, working in tech transfer offices really helps prepare students for what their actual jobs are probably going to end up being. Only one in 20 PhD people who get a PhD will end up in a traditional academic faculty job. So offices like this, offices like tech transfer, as much exposure as you can get as early as possible, it's good. Also for on my end, I would love to have sort of an army of interns that can go out and find more projects, find more technologies um, to really be able to leverage them uh, to have a more, I mean, I'm never going to say no to more data, right? Like I want to know more information so I can have a more complete picture of what's going on. Um, I'd love to return to more regular interactions with our other sort of partner offices at the university. We used to have a once a month lunch where we would just have an intelligence exchange um, and help coordinate like big joint projects and initiatives. Obviously, during COVID, those fell by the wayside. And um, I have a couple friends who are really fond of like Zoom lunches and Zoom happy hours. But to me, they just they don't cut it. <laughs> uh, so hopefully we'll be able to return to that sooner rather than later. Um, and then lastly, I talked about this a little bit, just sort of figuring out how to how to maintain the Tulane brand and how to keep sharing all the amazing work and the, the great things about our institution uh, in a, at the pre-COVID level in a post-COVID world. So how do, you, how do you adapt? How do you account for the fact that as much as we want everything to go back to the way it was, that it's probably not going to be exactly the way it was? How do you replicate that awesome cocktail hour? How do you replicate that killer graduate student symposium? Like these are all, you know, uh, I'd love to fast forward three months from now or six months from now and, and, and have all those answers and be able to bring them back. Um, so those are those are the three things that I think would would really help us uh, take our office to the next level for sure. Well, Clay, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? I'd be happy to answer any questions. They can send me an email at Christian, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N, at Tulane.edu or by finding me on LinkedIn. Great. Thanks so much again, Clay. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.